New Year, everyone. My name is Julie Masters, and welcome to the first, the first episode of Inside Influence for 2019. Now, I'm obviously recording this at the tail end of 2018, and even saying the words 2019 just sends a shiver of both terror that the year has gone by so fast and excitement of the next 12 months that are to come and an overwhelming urge to just lie on a sun lounger and be very still for a long period of time and I'm sure many of you feel the same way. Uh, Hopefully you're there right now. If you are there, don't move. Now normally I would be delving into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers, authors, thought leaders or movement makers in an attempt to decode and unravel their own particular journey of influence. However, today we have something just a little bit special. For this episode, we have instead put together some of our favorite moments, guests and lessons from 2018 into one super powered episode. The intention being to welcome the new year, not only in style, but with a curated one-stop toolkit to show up, stand out, and make the most of your influence over the coming 12 months. Now, in 2018, we had a year of extraordinary guests. I am always amazed, grateful, humbled at the caliber of people that say yes to being a part of this conversation. The list this year ranged from Monks, neuroscientists, political strategists, world record breakers, CEOs, digital powerhouses, a pro wrestler, and a global drumming sensation. <laughs> the list goes from here to here with everything in between, but all with one goal, to figure out what influence means today and how you can harness it. Now, we as a team and myself as the interviewer always always try and do our best to do our guest justice in the period of time that we have. Sometimes I have two hours, other times I have, I have 20 minutes. But in my experience, regardless of how long the interview, some things, well, they're just, they're just worth listening to twice. So in order to put together this episode, we actually decided to step out of our own heads, which is good to do at this time of year, And as well as the team each choosing their own favorite segments, we went out to a selection of listeners who have given us great feedback over the past 12 months, colleagues, friends, and sometimes even family members. The goal being to get a real cross-section of some of the most powerful insights from the podcast in 2018. By the way, a huge thank you to those of you who came on board for this project, some of you with huge lead times, some of you with very short lead times, you know who you are. We we appreciate the input and feedback and support. No end. And yes, we, we do still owe you wine. The goal of this episode is to get a cross-section of some of the most powerful tools, trends, and insights from this year's guests. Essentially, as the title suggests, uh, this is Influence of 2018. Now, to try and make it easy to navigate from your perspective, we have split the episode up into three sections. The three sections that I believe encapsulate the majority of our ability to influence. The first is inner influence, how we influence ourselves, our minds, our fears, our own wiring to show up and be the best versions of ourselves, to show up and be the most powerful influences that we can be. The second is interpersonal influence, how we influence other people, either in person, in a boardroom, or from the stage. And the third is epic influence, how you drive a conversation, a movement, or an industry at scale, at the type of scale that is available in today's digitized world. It has been so much fun to put this episode together, to take a moment at the end of the year and look back at all the incredible conversations that we've had and opportunities that we've had, and I have had, to really step up our own game. So, For the first time in 2019, welcome. Kick back, grab yourself an alcoholic beverage, why not? It's the new year. And soak up some of the most inspiring and influential ideas from Inside Influence in 2018. 
Our guests today, in no particular order, include Nancy Duarte, CEO and founder of Silicon Valley's largest and most successful communications firm, Duarte Inc., whose work includes, amongst many other campaigns, Al Gore's documentary, An Inconvenient Truth. Mark Shulman, current drummer for music sensation Pink, who has, as a musician, has performed in front of over one billion people. Just imagine what he knows about showing up and overcoming stage fright. Linda Cruz, global visionary and author of Leading on the Front Line. Judy Atkinson, who can forget this one? Emeritus professor, human rights award winner and an expert on the transgenerational effects of trauma on indigenous communities. Colin James, master communicator, master, master communicator, author, speaker, and creator of the Colin James Method, the number one program I genuinely recommend to anyone to help you inspire and transform any audience through world-class communication. James Kerr, author of the global bestseller Legacy, a result of going behind the scenes into one of the most successful sporting teams, if not the most successful sporting team of all time, the All Blacks. Now I can tell you out of any episode this year, this one in particular got incredible, incredible feedback from all different types of communities. So definitely one to listen out for. Lisa Messenger, game-changing founder and the CEO of Collective Hub, a global cross-platform community of millions of entrepreneurs. Daniel Flynn, founder and managing director of the social enterprise Thank You, which has given more than 5.5 million to help end global poverty. And Stephen Sheila, former Facebook CEO for Australia and New Zealand and the founder of the Digital CEO. In this first segment, we're going to be looking at inner influence. Now, what is inner influence? Inner influence to me is your ability to manage your own state put in its in its shortest frame the ability to look at what influences you your triggers what you allow to take over your physiology your wiring how you respond to fear how you respond to other influences in your life in order to show up as the most powerful most influential version of you now when you're listening to this particular section what i want you to focus on as you come into the new year is what tools do you need what boundaries do you need? What belief systems will you need in order to go out there and make the impact that you want to make, either on yourself, the people around you, your family, your workplace, your industry, or the world at large? I love that because, I mean, even Steve Jobs has a quote that, you know, nothing can begin unless something else ends. You can't have a new beginning without something ending, you know, die is a strong word. I love this story. There's a guy here in the Valley who runs uh, Google X. His name's Astro Teller. And um, so he's constantly, they're constantly inventing like weather balloons. Oh my God, do you think this will happen? They'll just like shoot something there and see what happens. I mean, they're just inventing, inventing, inventing all the time. And it's part of Google. It's the X in alphabet of Google. And He's just got this team that just thinks so far out the box and so far out ahead that they create so many ideas that he realized people get attached to their ideas and that he needed to, that they're like, remember that thing I shot in the air? Is that still happening? Right. And so he takes Dia de los Muertos, which is a um, Mexican holiday, at Dia de los Muertos, and they build this altar and they dance around the altar and they celebrate the death of all the ideas they came up with. And it's beautiful. Like, it's not a bad thing. They're celebrating the day of the dead ideas, you know? And I, and I, you're right. Like, we hang on to things for too long. We don't let ourselves move forward unless we actually acknowledge this is ended. This is over. This is done. I'm separating myself from that. In my book, Illuminate, I spent a lot of time studying that because there's ceremony in endings that you can't begin again without an ending. And then, you know, when I get deeper into my, my presentation, I talk about, you know, rock stars love to party. Partying isn't in the substance, it's in the attitude. And I said, rock stars are also known for living in the now, baby. You know, we're living in the now. But the truth is, all we have is now. Life is just a series of nows. I told Pink that. It blew her mind. She said, wow, what a concept. But think about it. 
life literally is just a series of nows. I mean, the past exists in, you know, in books and movies and our memories and history, but it really is gone. And the way that we live now is sort of determining our future. We're kind of living into our future, so to speak. So my feeling is like if you pay attention to the nuances of the now, everything is a performance, you just start to, first of all, you have a better time. And I also talk about, because I use rock and roll as a metaphor a lot because that's what I come from, but it's about having a better time with what you're doing. And my feeling is the more attention you're paying to what you do, you just enjoy it more. Even the most mundane stuff, if you're really like in the present, like I'm going to, I'm, I'm, I'm just filling out this, this, this form of this document or this, this, this whatever, whatever you happen to be doing, and it might be your thousandth time, but you really stop and kind of get into it and appreciate the value and the nuance. Wow, that, that changes the experience for you. I talk about you know viewing things as a get-to versus a have-to. You get to do this, because a get-to feels like it's a choice. A have-to feels like a chore. You know, get-to feels like um, uh, you're the cause. You know, have-to feels like the effect. So my feeling is like even the most mundane stuff, especially at work, we all think about what do I have to do? What do I have to do? Well, what if you switch that have to do a get to just for fun, just to see what happens? And that kind of leads me into what is the new concept of my next book, and that's what I talk about now, which is ABC. It's Attitude Behavior Consequence, which is that we can't control what happens to us, but no matter what happens, we do always have the power to control, choose our attitudes, and, it's, and think about that. It sounds simple, but your attitude is your point of view. It's where you're looking from, and where you're looking from determines what you see. And I'm trying to help people and empower people understand that, like, wow, you know, you might have had a really challenging time at work. You might have some adversity with a, with a client, with an associate. But you can choose the way that you view that, the meaning that you attach to that, so to speak. Why that's critical is because that attitude is what drives your behavior. And your behavior, and one attitude can drive many behaviors, and your behavior is what determines the consequences of your life. It's ABC, Attitude Behavior Consequence. Anger actually is just an emotion, but it's a doing place for in the you know the, the lower part of the brain, the reptilian brain, fight, fight, flee, freeze. Um, the freeze is the dangerous place, the fight, flight's good. Um, so working with anger can be very powerful. Um, and every time I've worked with anger in a very safe way where people are allowed to express that anger, not get out on the streets and smash up on other people or... You know, I've had people who say, you know, I just want to go out and, and get the cops to have a fight with me. I just wanted to fight them. And I say, did you win? Did, what did you get out of it? I just end up down in the clink in the, the watch house. I said, so you didn't get anything out of it, hey? So let's move down into what's under it. Let's find what's under it. And as we move into the grief, it's massive. There's layers of grief. I think one of the most powerful questions in influence in general is who do you who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Because I think that that is one of our biggest fears. You know, if we if we stand up and claim you know, make a claim, I'll be the greatest all black. I'm going to sail around the world nonstop. There's this our greatest fear is that someone's going to turn around and go, who do you like seriously? Who do you think you are? And if we can answer that for ourselves first in a compelling way. Then every time it gets asked, and it will get asked, other people will ask it, you'll ask it yourself, of yourself a thousand times. Every time it gets asked, it's a reminder to step into the thing that you've decided. But if you don't answer that question for yourself, every time it gets asked, you'll just be like, you're right, I have no idea. And you'll derail yourself into a hole. You know, I think there's a lot of power in the in in one interpretation of the idea of what integrity is. You know, integrity about being your word. Um, you know, I am what I say. Uh, you know, I, I'll, I'll, I'll say what I'll do, and I'll do what I say. And to 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 write that down, to make that real, make it tangible in the world, is really the beginning of just about anything. You know, you have you start with a blank sheet of paper, and you go, I want to start a business. You know. First, that's the first thing. The second thing is, what is that business going to be called, maybe? What is that business going to deliver? And that process of, of articulating it and defining it is, is uh, incredibly, you know, uh, clearly it's necessary, but it's incredibly powerful, particularly if you then make an internal decision that 
I am going to fulfill this promise. I am going to be my word. Um, whatever anyone says and whatever hardships come up and however difficult it is to find funding and, you know, whatever the naysayers will say, um, if I am to be my word, that has tremendous personal influence. But, but by being that, you will change the world. You talk about, you talk about resistance and the fear that we that we all have any any single person that's ever stood up and said something out loud in front of other people and that is the the fear of what will come back that someone will disagree um that someone will will, will fight a point or will know more than me and you talk about dealing with that resistance and again i'd never heard it worded this way and it's just beautiful you using that resistance almost as a boat uses the wind my husband and I actually were wee pups and we fell in love on a sailboat. So I think that has a lot of emotional value to me. But you, you, when you put the sail up, you actually, you know, harness the wind, which is technically resistance. But what's really interesting is when you're going into the wind, you can go faster the wind itse- than the wind itself. There's a physics phenomenon that makes you go faster than the wind itself. That's crazy, right? To harness resistance and go faster than the wind itself. So metaphorically, what happens is using that as a metaphor to when we communicate, if you spend time brainstorming all the different ways that people are going to resist, like, well, they might question my credibility. Well, I did a project like this that failed last time. Well, uh, the way it was structured, they didn't want it done that way. And, you know, you can think of all these ways that they might resist and not adopt your idea. Well, if I maybe, and this has happened here internally, where I roll out a program and they maybe didn't like the way it was structured or the process was cumbersome or something like that. If I say, hey, I'm, I, we're doing this. I realize it's going to feel like Groundhog, Groundhog's Day to you. But I want to tell you, I heard you last time. Last time I did it, I did this, 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 and it failed. This time to address that, I'm going to do this, 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 this. Please give me feedback because I really want everyone to buy in the process and I want to hear you. Blah, blah, blah. That's so different than it's just a different way to approach resistance. You know, they could walk away and be, you know, backstabby. Bah, 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 I can't believe it. But I addressed it, you know, apologized for a failure, d- dealt with it straight on and it, it like inoculates them or uh, anesthetizes them, I guess, to the, um, um, the resistance that they may throw up if you actually think through it, um, all the little uh, barriers that they'd put up. If you think through it, embedded into your talk, then you're harnessing their resistance and using it to actually get traction. It's a, it's so interesting talking, listening to you talk now because <laughs> you're taking me back to, to all these days that I remember days almost deals. The, yeah, the moment. And tears and everything else. <laughs> <laughs> and plenty of those on both sides. Yes. I think it was CBA. I yes. remember you, you talking about you were in an elevator and... You remember well. I and I burst into tears. Yep. Yes. Because <laughs> you finally got... And I just think that's worth highlighting that that was the 80th door. It was. On. And what was interesting is that it was CBA, which is a bank and traditionally they lend money and I've still never borrowed, stupidly or not, a cent for the business and they gave me $200,000. And in fact, Andy Lark, who is now on my advisory board, not only he wrote me a check, he said, would you like the money now up front? And I said, yes, I would. Thank you very much. And that meeting, I mean, I'd stalked Andy for at least three months. I mean, he was the guy to make a decision. And finally, I got in front of him and you know what? We just, we just had a conversation and we talked about life and we found some mutual ground. And luckily enough, he believed in entrepreneurs and he believed in print still. And he was prepared to back me and give me a go, you know, and that's something I will never, ever forget. And I'll talk about it until my grave because, you know, the amount is irrelevant. It could have been $20, it could have been $2 million. It actually doesn't matter. What matters is that someone beyond me believed in me. And so I was like, I don't care if you give me 20 bucks, like I'm going to make this happen because thank you very much. It was someone outside of me. And you know what? If one person believes in you, then you just got to get your hustle on and find other people who are also going to believe in you and back you. Find what you were born to do, however you feel you can. Don't, how they say, a short bad relationship is better than a long bad relationship. Don't waste time. 
keep checking in. Is your day-to-day life a good one? Are you actually feeling your happiness, your heart, your passion? Are you feeling alive? Are you feeling connected? Find your passion, your purpose, and ensure that alongside that, you play and have fun. We aren't born to suffer. We're born to live our passion and our purpose, to contribute, to be connected. So stop and look at yourself as often as possible. I still do it every couple of days. Am I on track? Am I doing what I was meant to be doing? People say to me, when's your next holiday? I don't need a holiday. I don't need to take a day off. I adore what I do. I get every day with a spring in my step. Keep analysing that you're living your passion, your purpose, and you're having fun. It's not about you, is, is how I sum it up. So many, so many people are so self-focused. Um, some people suffer from terminal uniqueness. Uh, they have, have a perception of themselves as, as sort of super special or something. Or they think the world is about them. And it's, there's a, so much suffering that goes with that. Um, first of all, if you're not getting the, the, the response that you want and you take it personally, you suffer it. Um, if things go wrong, um, you feel like it's the world is against you. It's not. The world doesn't care, and you start to suffer. Uh, you also have an expectation of fairness, and fairness is a myth. Uh, and when things, as they always do, um, sometimes will occur, will be unfair. Uh, you take that personally, you suffer. But importantly, as a communicator, it's not about you. It's about your audience. It's always about the receiver of your communication. That's the, where you place your attention. That's where you place your focus. And the more you genuinely do that, the more powerful and effective you'll be as a communicator. Also, you'll adjust uh, appropriately because when it's about the audience, you do what's needed to get the message across or facilitate engagement. If that means you have to roll across the floor to make a point, you will roll across the floor. You won't be going, oh, I'm an idiot. I wonder what they'll think of me. This is stupid. No, your attention is on yourself. So attention on your on the other, on the audience. It's not about you. There's 7 billion people on this planet. Sometimes it's not about you is a useful maxim to live by. And, uh, and the audiences pick this up immediately. Um, I'm sure you've been at, I mean, how many, how many speakers have you seen in your, oh, <laughs> your career? And you've seen the ones that walk on the stage and you know it's about them. They love the limelight. Mm. They love the applause. It's a sense of hunger, I find. You can feel it. Yeah. And, and how do you respond to that person? Well, you're going, right, uh, are we here just to validate you? Just, is, this, is this what this is about? Because that's exactly what it's about. Uh, when, in fact, you're there in service of the audience, you're there in service of the message, you're there in service of the outcome. And um, I think that would be the thing i teach. I would sit with her. Um, and then towards the end of it, I said, you know, this is, this is really, really beautiful. Can you tell me what these all mean? And she put her hand on the first one and she said, excited that we're going to be working together again. And the second one, so this is the bottom one on the left. And then up above that one's um, kind of anxious. I'm starting to feel really, I was starting to feel really anxious when I painted that. And then the next one over here, I was just really, really angry. I was full of anger. And then the bottom one was, I feel peaceful. So it was like this thing. Now, you would never have picked it up if you, it's not a painting, you know. Um, but absolutely, totally exquisite. I, I've decided I want to use that in, I'm going to rewrite the package and use that in the front cover of the manual. Because getting people to name feelings is so difficult if the only feeling they've ever had is anger, rage. And the anger moves so quickly into the action of violence that they that it can't even name anger and sit with it and go, oh, I'm feeling angry. I, I need to say something here. It's like anger, whap. Mm. Um, Cause and effect feelings. quickly. Feelings. And also as, as parents teaching our children yeah. to have an emotional vocabulary. Yes. To be able to pick an emotion, mm. name it. Let's talk about 
totems, the importance of totems, which again sounds like it's a symbol. A totem is essentially a symbol, and it sounds like such a simple, you know, soft thing to focus on. But the All Blacks go hard in this area. They really go hard in this area. One of the beautiful ones that that I heard again from listening to you speak was wine gums, leaving wine gums out in in the changing room before every match. Can you walk me through why wine gums? In New Zealand, they're called jet planes. And jet planes, every Kiwi boy, they were kind of wine gum stamped into the shape of a jet plane and um, or a sort of delta wing aircraft. And um, every Kiwi boy and girl, I think, remembers being five years old and swapping these things in the playground, you know, a red for a blue for a green, these sticky things. And uh, certainly when I was there, and I, I imagine they still do it, they, they leave wine gums out uh, for the players. Um, and so if a, if a player grabs hold of one of these things um, before they run out to play for their country, they remember what it meant for them to be five years old uh, and want to be an All Black. And that kind of small narrative detail, this little symbol that reflects and reminds and reinforces what it means, the, the sort of the belief and the belonging of what it means to, uh, to be an All Black is tremendously important. And if, if, if you look at... All the great sustainable cultures, you know, what do they have? How do you define a culture? You know, it's very difficult to define a culture. But, but all cultures have the same sort of things. They have heroes and they have myths. They have symbols and they have rituals. They have a common, uncommon language, mantras and, and so on. They tend to have a Bible. Um, and if you simplify, it comes down to three things. To, to kind of verbalize, symbolize and ritualize. Verbalize, you know, I'm in all black 24-7. They have symbols, they have their badges, the black jersey with the silver fern, the badges of belonging. Um, and they also have their rituals. Um, and and the, often those rituals contain the kind of the, the core narrative of, of, of that team. So, so the All Blacks uh, obviously use the haka. And I think what's, uh, the, what's fantastic about the haka is that the sound of the haka is the sound of the, the earthquake. And, and that earthquake shakes the, the, the earth and splits it open and release, releases our ancestors from the soil to our soul to stand beside us in our struggle here on earth. And it's based on an idea called whakapapa, which is uh, this idea of lineage within, within Maori culture, um, that, that we're a long unbroken chain of people stretching from the beginning of time to the end of eternity, and we're all linked arm in arm, and the sun, sun shines for a moment, but just a moment on our time, and it reminds us that we just have a fleeting moment, that life is short, and that we have this fleeting opportunity to make our mark and to, to make our difference and to... To, or, or to, to add to the lineage, to add to the legacy, or as the All Blacks say, to leave the jersey in a better place. Can we be intentional and authentic at the same time when we're, when we're looking to master our communication? And the doctor has had a really shitty day and they've got problems at home and one of their children is sick uh, and you walk into the office and they're sitting there looking morose and gloomy and down. How would you feel? Well, you feel disturbed by that. You want your doctor to be present, uh, professional, turned on, switched on. So is the doctor being inauthentic? No. The doctor is being unprofessional if they're allowing their so-called authentic state to be in play. So it's about context. Mm. You're not, you, can never, you can never really be inauthentic in the sense of you can't not be you. You're still you in all your complexity and all your you know, silliness and all the stuff that makes you a human being. But it's about choosing the appropriate behavior to produce the result. In this next section, we're going to be looking at how we influence other people, interpersonal influence. Now, it's one thing to show up as the most powerful, influential version of yourself, but in the eternal words of Mike Tyson, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. So... How do you hold hold that space with other people? How do you sit in a room with somebody else and enable them to be heard, to feel heard, enable the information to come across to you and integrate it in such a way that you can change your ideas? How do you communicate your ideas in a compelling way so that the other person not only understands but feels absolutely compelled to take action? How do you stand on stage and cut through people's attention? How do you hold them enthralled 
for prolonged periods of time. How do you collaborate? How do you get people to buy into your idea and then actually come along with you on the journey? Now, again, when you listen, when you listen to this section, what I really want you to focus on is what situations can you see yourself walking into next year? Not only the ones that are likely that are going to happen, what situations do you want to see yourself walking into? What kind of meetings do you want to have? The types of people that you want to present to, who you want to hear your ideas. And then how can you structure them in a way that will cut through and get action? And also, equally as importantly, how can you hear feedback and other people's opinions and then pivot to a more powerful place than you could have got to alone? You're making it an easy yes. A very easy yes. A lower bar, an easier yes, if we can bring you something guaranteed. Yeah, and and actually, I've probably never heard someone put it like that, an easy yes, but that's exactly what it was. And that built to another easy yes, which was with a company called Vizzy. And we pitched to them and said, we have a factory on board, because they are, and we're hoping to launch, but would you be up for sponsoring some bottles? Now, Vizzy's a billion-dollar company. They sponsor $3,000 worth of bottles, which isn't much, but we were happy because now we've got Vizzy, a billion-dollar company, and a factory. So two kind of easy yeses, which led to the third one. The third one was a big yes, but because we had momentum and our story was building, not just the idea but the story, the uh, third meeting is with the largest distributor of beverages in our country. And we pitch bold. We, we, we literally are there going, we're going to change the world. We have a factory, we have Vizzy, and we will be meeting with all the different competitors in this space, but you're the largest. We came to you first. Are you in? And what was the answer? Yes. And we'll take 50,000 bottles from you. How quick can you get it to us? And did your heart just sink in that moment? Well, yeah. No, actually, it was a massive awkward pause. I am... Um, the problem was um, we didn't know much about manufacturing lead time. So we, we, we said three weeks to which our factory manager nearly died because he's like, that's not possible. Um, but, and we got it done in about five weeks. But that big yes came from a series of small kind of easy yeses, but that closed the loop and um, yeah, the rest was kind of history. Money is not the only currency. Yeah, absolutely. And you're talking there about, you know, passion being... Passion being one currency, which it, I think it's hard to see passion as a currency when you're the passionate person. You see it as a driving force, but not so much a currency. But when you're on the other end, when you've got people who are asking you to invest in something or you've got people asking you to come on board with something, yeah. actually passion is one of the primary currencies that you buy into. 100%. And as you know, I've written six books since I launched the magazine and we can get into that purposefully to write them in parallel to what was happening so that people could understand the story behind the story and it would be relatable and attainable. But the second book in the series is called Money and Mindfulness, which is all about there are more currencies than cash and you can do good in the world and make money and the two don't have to be mutually exclusive. And I say to people so often, particularly in the startup world, people are always like, I don't have money or I don't have anything to sell yet or blah, blah, blah. And So they keep themselves small and they hold themselves back. And so I always say, well, what are your saleable, tangible assets? What do you have? If if you don't have a product or a service that yet exists, what is it? And often it is that passion or that vision. And it's the ability to be able to explain that to people and get them to buy into it and believe in you and the project before it even exists. I mean, so many of us have to learn that skill, I think. I mean, I sold that magazine eight months out from launch and got people finally after knocking on 79 doors, someone said yes. And I was selling, and we can get into that if you want, but you know, something that didn't yet exist. But you were literally selling blank pages at that point. I was selling blank pages. And I mean, we can get into that because it's a fascinating story. And whoever's listening, don't, don't take from this anything about media, but try and draw a parallel to whatever it is that you're doing. But whilst I was entering this industry that people said was dead or dying and other people were selling a flat ad on a page for say $10,000, the first issue of that print magazine cost me $350,000. So I would have had to, at that rate, sell 35 ads to a product that didn't yet exist to someone who had no experience in an industry that was dead or dying. And I probably would have had to 
discount the ads to half price. So I would have had to sell 70 ads prior to a product existing just to underwrite the cost. So instead of that, I thought I'm going to have to amp this right up. And the first package I sold was not $10,000, but $200,000. And I thought about what are my saleable tangible assets that don't yet exist, but that what can I sell someone? And so I thought, well, okay, I can speak. By this stage, I'd done some speaking. So I can give someone some speaking gigs. I will have a physical print magazine. So why don't I give them, you know, X amount of copies of the print magazine? I can give them some ads, but it's a bit boring. I can write stories, so editorial. I can do advertorial. I could do reader giveaways. And so I started thinking about what is in my potential future toolkit that I can package up and sell. And so the very first deal I did wasn't for $10,000. It was for $200,000. And that blew the roof off the expectation and the norm of what was possible in the publishing and media industry. And you know, that put us in really good stead to do future deals. You went on to perform in front of a billion people, a billion people. Yeah. And Pink, who you're on tour with right now, Foreigner, Cher, Billy Idol, Beyonce, Tina Turner, like the list literally just goes on and on. What is that like? Like what, when I was doing my research and I was trying to imagine that, I was trying to imagine it and I was kind of, you know that moment when you look out? Yeah. Because I've had a small experience of it on, on much, much, much smaller stages. That moment when you look out and you see all those faces, does it still, because you touched on it just briefly before, does it, does it still make you anxious or is it a bit like just an everyday thing for you right now? Do you still have that anxiety or awe? Well, yeah. Or, well, here's the thing. We, uh, we... My nickname from my boss, Pink, is Disneyland because I'm Mr. Gratitude. You know, she calls me the happiest place on earth. The truth is I'm not always happy. But I use gratitude as an example of an attitude shift. I, I use this, this attitude. I don't take it lightly. I cre- actually create it to attitude shifts. They're conscious. Um, so one of the things that I do on stage is I am constantly, and I stop, Every single show, many times a show, and I just stop, get really present, just say, wow, I just want to really embrace this moment really thoroughly. I don't want to take this for granted. And I just look at, I look at the, the audience and I try to just connect with every area, every being that I can with gratitude and love and joy. And, and again, these are decisions because you can just let it go by. And you or let it drown happy. you, let it overwhelm you. Or let it overwhelm you. Um, I, the reason why I don't get overwhelmed, another little sort of trick or viewpoint, I should say, that I have, and I think that you understand this because you touched on it earlier when you even talked about finding the light, the one person with light, is you are literally just having one-on-one relationships just with a lot of people. That's another interesting way to look at it because we get overwhelmed because you see a big crowd. The reality is it's just you and one person at a time. One of the things that's so beautiful about Pink is I be- truly believe that, that, the, the, that the, audience, the audience, when they're inside among other people, that melts away. And they're just having a one-on-one relationship with her. And so I look at it as like a lot of one-on-one relationships because that's kind of the way it should be. You know, when you, it's like when you're engaged in a movie or a great book, you are just one-on-one in that experience. And any great performer makes you feel like it's just you and them. And I watch these people. I joke, one of the things I do when I, t- when I talk to IT people, when I talk to the unsung heroes, I say, can you imagine what it's like being on stage in front of 50,000 people and not one set of eyes is looking at you? Because when you're with a great performer like Pink, people will look at me, but they're really, I'm here to be of service, and they're looking at her. And so when I connect, when I'm looking at these people's eyes in the audience, I can see that unless they're turning around with their friends and sharing something like, which they do sometimes, normally it's like they're having a one-on-one relationship with her. And that's really all it is. It's just one-on-one relationships. So walk us through the structure. We're talking about this, this form right now. Uh-huh. Is there a way of just walking us through what that looks like for yeah. anybody who's thinking, okay, if there's this perfect form, tell me what it is. Yeah, it's a, it's a persuasive story form. Um, basically, it's kind of like 
pumpkin teeth if you carve <laughs> pumpkin, but it's a um, it starts with a line on the bottom, and you establish what is, um, and then and then you the human brain is hardwired for contrast all day long. We're contrasting like, Oh, that thing moved. Am I safe? Oh, am I like them? Am I different from them all day long? We're processing contrast, contrast, contrast. So what you're going to do is you're going to use this persuasive structure to create so much contrast that when you describe the current realities and contrast them with the bright hope of the future, your current realities are not appealing and, and the future opportunity is alluring. And so it's a structural device where you move between, you spend some time explaining what is, and then you explain what could be. But here's our reality. Oh, look what could be. Oh, here's where we are today. But just think about this other, but reframe it in your mind as this, you know, and you move back and forth. And by the time you're done, they don't know why, but suddenly they're not as comfortable with the status quo and they want to join your movement and make sure your ideas become reality. So it's definitely um, a format that works. You've got me thinking about personal gravity now. I mentioned a little bit before. The reason I want to bring it up with you, especially when we're talking about dealing with difficult people, is there was something that you said to me years ago and it stuck with me and I, I didn't quite know what to do with it at the time, but it's become something that's kind of acted as a bit of a guiding light. And we were we were talking in a cafe, using context, mm-hmm. talking in a cafe and I was talking about probably dealing with somebody that I was finding challenging at the time. And you said something that you need to work on is you need to get rid of your little girl mm. and you need to call in the older woman. Mm. And at the time, I remember looking at you going, I have no idea what to do with that, but okay. Yet it has become something that I think about a lot and a way of grounding myself and giving myself gravity before I walk into a room. And that is something that that you have in spades, just that personal gravity. When you step in, it's like whoosh, you know, the air gets sucked out of a room. Can you decode that? Is there a way of replicating that? So there's there's gender dynamics here uh, in play. Uh, now this little girl thing uh, with women, the, another way of describing this is they play cute. They're cute. And because cute is rewarded when you're a, a little girl. Aren't you cute? You say cute. When you become a teenager, cute is a synonym for being attractive. She's really cute or he's cute. Uh, so there's now, uh, it now becomes, uh, it's got emotional weight to it. Um, and if you if you are identified, validated as being cute, well, clearly you start thinking, well, that's a useful strategy, and unconsciously you start to use cute as a device to uh, get people to like you, to be likable, uh, to facilitate connection, and it is it works. It, it's a very it's a very uh, nifty technique until about the age of twenty five. Uh, after that, it starts to look a it loses effect. Now, this cute thing um, with women lasts for some for decades. Now, I'm going to go into a story, obviously, because now I want to illustrate what I'm just describing. And this is a head of strategy of a major insurance company here in Sydney, Australia. Uh, she was she was she presented the, the strategy to the board. It was her first time. She she'd only been in the job about eight months. It was the first board presentation of strategy. And at the end of the delivery, the chairperson said, uh, could you come back next month and re-present that? Um, that wasn't good enough. Oh, wow. oh, wow. Can you imagine, right? So she was just shattered by that. So she called us in to work with her. I said, all right, um, let's say her name is Anna. And I said, okay, Anna, uh, can you uh, present how you presented to the board? So she sat up. Uh, she had her hands in front of her, and she tilted her head. She went into what's called soft eyes, or bhakti eyes, we call it. It means eyes of worship. Uh, so, you know, when, when someone, when people are around celebrities, I don't know if you've ever seen this, they go into soft eyes, bhakti. Yeah, uh, in England we call that doe eyes. Doe eyes, yeah. So they're adoring. They've got this adoring look. So she got head tilt, um, these doe eyes, and starts to speak. I said, stop. I said, well, I haven't really started. I said, yes, you have. 
you've already gone and you've reached for cute. She goes, what do you mean cute? I said, just look at you. And I got my phone out, took a photograph and showed her. She went, oh, my God. I said, all right, let's start again. <laughs> all right, now, you're our head of strategy. You're 43 years old. You're a woman of substance and accomplishment. How dare you sit here with a little cute doe-eye bullshit? What are you trying to do? And she, you know, she was just like aghast at me. Now, the reason I got, I got um, confront, confrontational is that it's a, you need to shock sometimes people into awareness, into wakefulness. Also, I calibrated that she was a strong person, strong character, and her past was an indicative of this. Uh, and so we just changed the, changed the body posture. We got the head looking straight and got the eyes looking focused. Uh, and, of course, we made a few adjustments with the content delivery. But her tone of voice, she dropped the sort of, oh, I'm going to talk about strategy and where we're heading as an organization. <laughs> and to all that breathiness all got, got that out. So, essentially, we didn't change anything in the presentation, a few tweaks. But what we did change was her stepping into her woman, into her power, into her authority. Can you imagine Gail Kelly doing cute, in, you know, the head of uh, the Paseo Westpac? It'd just, just be inconceivable. Just you, know, you, you look at her and you see nothing but a testament to authority, a, a woman of great heft, great accomplishment. So that's what we mean by that. With men, they go into joker. They've got a joke all the time. They, you know, they have this joker thing. And it's a similar uh, relationship to cute. In that they got affirmed for it. They got liked for it. It became a, a technique to, to, to diffuse um, uh, uh, conflict or stress or anxiety. Uh, and so they, 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 they bring this up inappropriately. And it immediately compromises their gravitas. It immediately dilutes their impact and authority. And then listening. Listening to what is happening around me, and that happened this morning. Um, as I got in the car, I was still breathing and thinking, what is it that I need to be aware of uh, to be able to speak today? Um, holding the space, I put my hands out here, is, is sitting with my hands out and knowing that what's going to come into this space is stories that I really don't want to know about or hear. But somebody has to know about them. Um, somebody has to speak to them uh, and follow through in that holding with a movement, with action. You can't just hold the space and hear stories if you don't ethically respond in some way. Okay get really kind of practical with that because I think it's one of the things that is easy to do not very well. Mm. Hold a space for somebody else and be it in your relationships, be it at work, be it with your children. It's very easy to go down the pathway, well, just tell me what happened. Tell me what happened. Give me the facts. I just want the facts. Mm. So there's a difference, isn't there, when you're, yes. when you're holding a space for somebody. Can you give me some practical tools of, of how... How do I do that? If there's a space that I want to hold for somebody else, I want to be able to hear them. I have a genuine desire to hear somebody deeply. Mm. How do I go about A, creating the space and then holding it when I'm there? Mm. So the beginning, as I said, empty yourself. And then as you come into the energy space of the other, try to feel, um, to, if you have to say something, to open a conversation or whether the conversation is going to to move and just be aware of where it's moving and open uh, in that holding also open yourselves yourself to being inquisitive being curious one of the things is that they do incredible collaborations ah. they are intense collaborators and maybe that's just the people that i tend to admire but there's something about collaborations that lifts you into another game Mm. and lift somebody else into another game. And when you combine those two games together, it's a brand new game that blows everybody's mind. It's amazing. And it's interesting because, I don't know if you all remember this, I mean, I started my first business in October 2001. But before that, I was working in sponsorship only for eight months, but I was working for Barry Humphreys and Cirque du Soleil and all these like arts and entertainment properties. And my boss at the time, the sponsorship was all about dollars. Like how much can we get from corporates to support these acts? And back then, I was like, no, 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 there's got to be a smarter way. Can't we do some collaborations? Like, 
And he was like, are you nuts? So I like to say I've been doing this for like so long, well before it became a thing. And I think it's the smartest, smartest way to do business. And often people will go for the easy route. It might be, oh, someone's going to pay me $10,000 cash. But actually what I want to challenge the listeners to is this. If someone has $10,000 cash to give you or they have a database of 200,000 people, what is more beneficial to you? Is them sharing your message to their audience of 200,000 more powerful than taking that instant hit of $10,000 cash? And so that's what I've thought all along. Like, what is the best use? What's the best collaboration? How can we value exchange to the best of both of our abilities to really blow both of our brands through the roof? So don't always go for the quick fix or the monetary thing. And also know that anyone listening can start a business. It's like what I talked about before. If you have something, anything that you can package up that is of value to someone else, then you can start to take it out there. And that's what's exciting. This final section is around epic influence, epic influence. Now, what I mean by epic influence is your ability to drive and amplify a conversation or an idea at scale. Now, this is where you start to stand out as an influencer at an industry, a community, a national or an international level. It's your ability to be able to share your ideas in on the right platforms in the right way at the right time so that they have a life of their own. They start to be adopted by communities. They start to be shared. They start to be passed from one person, from one platform to another until they have a life of their own and they create a ripple effect that you by yourself with just one voice could never have achieved alone. Now, there are obviously so many new tools now available, so many new tools, so many algorithms, so many platforms that have forever changed the face of influence and the type of power we have at our disposal and at our fingertips when it comes to driving epic influence. So how do we use those tools? How do we um, make the most of them? How do we use them strategically? How do we use them responsibly? Now, if you listen for one thing or a few things, as this is my last shot in this episode, have it be this. How far do you want or do you need to influence in order to create what you want to create? Who and what communities do you need to bring on board? Where do they live? What platforms do they use? How far and where would you need to amplify your message in order to get their attention? What tools can you harness, be they personal or technological, to achieve that? And seeing as this this is the question, the last question I always end the podcast with, if I or we could put anyone in a room, however many millions it might be, it might be five, it might be five million, anyone you would ever want to influence and you had five minutes, what would you say? That's true. That is, if you, if you could dissect my brain most days, I'm telling a narrative, a story that I am buying into and I believe in. Um, can you tell me what that is? Well, I can tell you a little bit of it. Um, probably not all of it in the sense of part of the way I, I kind of tell stories is I'm thinking what's next and after that and after that. So if I told you, you basically get a whole business plan, which may change, but um, without getting into some of the details, I am talking about and I am thinking through, honestly, launch ideas that are probably two, three years off. Scripts, campaigns, how would I present that? And when someone crushes, because the crushing didn't stop, it continues and the bigger we get, the more meetings you find yourself in and you're like, what? When does this crushing stop? And it will never stop if you truly are pioneering and you're willing to keep trying to take new ground. People continue to tell us that's not going to work. The nappy market, which we just launched into, people said, you won't get in. We got in, now it's you won't stay in. And, you know, and, and people are always telling you a narrative. You have to tell yourself a different one. So you essentially think in stories. Yeah. As a way of keeping yourself keeping yourself on and in. Yeah, I've, I've never been pointed. Uh, no one's ever sort of hit me up and, and, and put it like that. But it's, it's true. In fact, yesterday at our leadership retreat, I was, I was struggling to comprehend a challenge from the team. 
um, and they were, they, were, they, were, they were really challenging me on, a, on an idea that I had. I'm like, God, we need to do this for this reason. And they're like, but why? I'm like, because can't you understand the story? It would be so powerful. And, and, and he hits me up and he's like, no, that's not how this works. You do the work and then the story comes. And he's right. But there's a part of me that, and I'm, I'm, I'm sort of battling thinking, the challenge for all of us is you need stories to tell yourself to keep moving forward, but you also can't force a narrative. You can create, and, but you've got to be willing to pivot. Some of the stories I told myself years ago, here's what, and we'll do this, and then we'll do that, and then this will happen. I had to be willing when things changed to be able to change the, some of the details of the narrative. The core purpose doesn't change. The overall story doesn't. Thank you. Our, our purpose statement is um, to empower humanity to choose a world without poverty. My overall story is this idea of empowering humanity. How many people are part of humanity? Lots. <laughs> How big is global poverty? Big. Well, we want to see it gone. And so that's the overarching thing that's not changing. And then I've got a few different storylines on how we could get there. The number one, in fact, I think it was the third or fourth largest channel on YouTube globally was, is, was a show called, a, a channel called Ryan's Toys Reviews. And Ryan's parents at that time were making about $10 million a week, a week. Well, back up. Hang on. So Ryan firstly has parents. So how old is Ryan? At that time was four. Ryan is four. Yeah. And his parents were making $10 million a week on ads to support and sponsorship to support Ryan's toy review. Now, I said to this media mogul, where's your toy show on Free Dare TV? Didn't have one. He'd never heard of Ryan. He didn't know the toys. I, and I said, if, if, if this was only one of the top 100 channels on YouTube, you could say it was a fluke. There's 19 others of the top 100. It's not a fluke. It's a trend. But you aren't on this trend. You aren't saying, how do I build content on my free-to-air platforms and then I can move it and monetize it globally on digital platforms? We'd see it in his, um, his uh, reality TV shows, like such as take cooking shows. And we saw this when I was at Facebook. It used to always frustrate me. They build the funnel of talent to, tr to go and they look at thousands of people. They get it down to a few hundred, then to a few dozen. They put those people on TV. Then they chuck people off. They get down to the one person or two people that win. Every time they throw somebody off, they basically are gone from monetization and by, that, by, by the TV network or the producer of the show. We would sit there on Facebook and say, these people you're throwing off the show have, some of them would have hundreds of thousands of followers on social media. But that was completely ignored by the TV network. They just said, that, that person's off our show, done. And to me, it was like you're not making any, you're probably taking some, some diamonds here who actually probably are worth more to you on on social channels and on digital than they are on free-to-air, and you're just throwing them away. It's like you're cutting up the meat and you're just shoving the, the best cuts on the floor and having the dogs eat them. And, and this, is, this is the way of thinking about the world that I think that they weren't doing. And unfortunately, a lot of this game is now played out. You know, there's, there have been businesses now built, global businesses that are built around mobile digital, global mobile digital um, video. And, you know, they haven't built that. And so they could play catch-up, it's possible. But I think a lot of their focus was too much on just the existing platforms that they already ran and they had invested in, mainly free-to-air TV for, for this particular player. Um, and they thought only about one geography, which was Australia. And right now, if you're in media, as you'll know, you're in a global market. You cannot just think about your own country. The benchmark of success is to make myself redundant. It's not necessary for anyone. People, we're, we all have this ability to, especially in developing countries, to become entrepreneurs because they around them are their families, their children. They will do anything to ensure they have the money for education, health, and food. And just being given that slight hand up and the sharing of intelligence just set them off to be able to look after themselves. There was always mentorship given to them afterwards by the business people. So as they grew their business, they were there as a helping hand. But it's not necessary. People have the ability, if you really understand who they are, where they are, and what the market will hold. At a higher level, I would capture it this way. I think we are now into an era where there's, there's always been two battles going on in business, right? But they've largely been in separate arenas. And one is the battle for human commerce, which is basically getting people to buy products and services from you. And the other is the battle for human attention. 
Traditionally, the human attention battle was fought by media companies who would then aggregate that attention and then sell access to it to the, to the ones fighting for human commerce, right? So a TV network sells ads to Procter & Gamble, but a TV network, TV network fights for attention and then Procter & Gamble fights for commerce. The world we're entering now, and social media is part of what's driving it, um, but it's also other digital tools and platforms, is these two battles are now joining. So it's a battle for commerce and attention that's being fought by every brand in the world. Some brands don't realize this yet, or, and certainly most brands haven't been able to make the pivot to doing fighting both battles at the same time. Uh, but it, the likes of Facebook, Google, Amazon have realized this already, and that's where they are fighting. So that changes your paradigm about how you would tell stories as a, let's just say, as a brand. Um, the old way of telling stories as a brand were ads, right? Advertising campaigns and the and the the cadence that sits around advertising campaigns. You know, the old television commercials where you know you you kind of come up with a, you know you've got a, a brand positioning that you work out. You got a product need. You got you do a little analysis and segmentation of customers at a very high level. Uh, you then might try to boil that down into uh, one or two messages that fit under a brand umbrella. Then you go into you know, the whole production of that in different from different mass media channels, largely built uh, for big brands around TV commercials. That's the you know that's the lighthouse, and then everything else just kind of falls off the back of the TV commercials. And a TV commercial is thirty seconds, and it's going to tell a story in thirty seconds, right? And usually, it's like there's a problem. The problem gets resolved, and the brand is the hero. That's the formula. That formula does not work anymore, and it's it's a formula, and it particularly doesn't work in digital channels, right? Because you don't have thirty seconds. You, there's no point in talking to everybody with the same story because now, particularly on Facebook and Instagram, you have data that gets down to individual level. So you can literally create thousands of different stories for different people. So why do you even need a brand, in a sense? What what's the purpose of a brand? Let's go to Prince Charles. Mm. He's always a good person to oh, go to. Definitely. So with the royal wedding, literally tomorrow. Yes. I, I have bottles of champagne and friends ready to go. <laughs> so talk to me about Prince Charles. You met Prince Charles and that was another moment where it changed the trajectory of everything that you've created since. Totally. I mean, I I was very, very lucky because I was working with Tibetan refugees in India back in 2001 and... He was in India visiting, doing his, his work. He's a great humanitarian. And he asked to come and see my project. And I was, of course, delighted, nervous, but very delighted. And uh, he came to this refugee camp just outside of Delhi. The Indian government were not happy because it was a rather unpleasant place. But he was determined to come. And it was so special because we had a lot of time to be able to talk and I was sharing with him my absolute passion to engage the private sector as a resource in development work. And his response was, you are absolutely right, Linda, that they are the most underused resource. And then he said something that has stayed with me right up until this day. He said, you're so passionate about what you do. You inspire so easily They'll hear your story and they'll get their checkbooks out and they'll write a big fat check for you. And he said, as they're about to give it to you, just leave it on the table. Don't pick it up. To which I said, why? Tell me. And he said, the money is for the moment. What you really want, the gem, the jewel in the crown is them. The person, the individual their heart, their soul, their business skills, their entrepreneurial skills. Money is everywhere. They are not. It's them you want. And in fact, he said, if they're not prepared to give of themselves, leave the money exactly where it is. It's a double act. It's them and their money. And in fact, he said, the most important thing is them. So he was my mentor right at the beginning of my career. And we've worked together on many projects since. He's one of my heroes. Every business on earth is going to become a data business. And uh, data will become the reason why a business succeeds or fails. And so it's not just 
with the data that you gather, it's what it's the, it's how you analyze it, and it's the speed with which you make use of it to solve problems, either for customers, for yourself, um, you know, in your supply chain, in your manufacturing, whatever it happens to be. There's a lot of businesses today that are built on, and they can be in real estate or others, that are built on the old ways of data. And we all, I mean, data is not a new thing in one sense is that even 100 years ago when somebody walks into your store, if you're running a store, you're collecting data as soon as they walk in the store. You're looking at them. You're seeing, you know, you're checking out how they're how are they attired? Um, you know, do they look happy? Are they engaging with you? Um, do they have children with them? You know, you, you start to work through and then you start to ask some questions. They might ask for a product. You might say, well, you know, actually, maybe this would serve, serve your, your, your interests better. So our brains are always collecting data. They always have been. But now, of course, we have bigger brains even than our brains, which are called computers that can crunch data. But becoming the master of this data is going to be the key to your your real estate company or, or any other business. Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and found tons and tons of useful ideas and insights for growing your own influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your influence journey, if you want to take everything you have learned today and just ramp it up a notch, or you just want to learn more about the power of thought leadership when it comes to growing a business, an enterprise, or spreading an idea, there is now also a research paper that you can download from my website, juliemasters.com. Pop in your email address. It is free. We will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of all the ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in 10 years of doing this work. It's called the Influencer Code. It's not long, but it is full of value. So download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope that it makes a massive difference in your career or business. Thank you always to our producer, co-founder, and the main brain, I'm not joking, behind the Inside Influence podcast, Lauren Kelly. In the words of Jerry Maguire, you complete me. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an interview.